where the glass is lined with yesterday's wine. Welcome to another edition of Liquid Gold right here on We Own This Town, the We Own This Town podcast network. Shout out to producer Michael Eads and everybody at We Own This Town. My name's Mike Wolf with you here today, following up with one of our heroes in the bar world, drinks world, soda shop world, and now wine world. We're going to follow up with Darcy O'Neill. I think we're breaking news on the program today because Darcy has some brand new news, a new project to talk about a winery that he is doing right on the banks of Lake Erie. And he's going to be growing some really interesting hybrid grapes. So we're going to get into some of the science behind that, why that is really appearing to be the future of wine and why, and this is amazing, why regions of wine are going to change so much over the next 20 years. There's a lot of data to suggest that wine regions are changing a lot with global warming and there's going to be the capacity to grow a whole host of new grapes in different regions like Syrah, which you can't grow in Canada now, you'll be able to grow in about 10 years. So the whole world of wine is going to change. We're going to talk about that today. Darcy's the author of a really cool book called Fix the Pumps all about soda fountain culture going back to the 1860s all the way through to today. So we talk a little bit about the the new life that's been breathed into that book and how popular it was during quarantine for a lot of people. So that's kind of cool. Um, check out everything Darcy's doing at artofdrink.com. As always, you can email us at liquidgoldpod at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at liquidgold underscore pod. We're hard at work on and just about finishing the new book, Cheer a liquid gold holiday drinking guide that will be out in late October on Turner Publishing. So we're getting really excited about that. It'll have booze news, anecdotes from Kenneth, plenty of recipes all focused on that real drinking season that starts at the first chill of the air in September and goes all the way through to New Year's Eve and then kind of changes after New Year's Eve. And we start, we get into some non-alcoholic drink ideas and uh, all kinds of techniques with that. So we've got that coming up later this year, and I've also got the new book, Barantined, the hard copy version of Lost Spring, which will be coming out in July of this year. You can pre-order it now up on Amazon and wherever you get your books. Bookshop.org, always a good option to support the indies of the bookshop world. So Barantined has all these different recipes and tips for making drinks at home, has some secrets to the old fashioned. I've always wanted to put in a book, finally got to. Really simple stuff for a lot of these drinks. And then we get into thoughts about quarantine of last year, how that was for so many different bartenders. I think there's 55 different bartenders in the book, all talking about various aspects of how their lives changed. Of course, we had the tornado March 3rd, 2020. And there's just a lot to reflect from some of Nashville's best bartenders and bartenders from around the country. Got some uh, Minneapolis and Chicago and New York love in there as well. And our, our some of our homies out in Colorado chimed in for the book as well. So Barantined coming out in July and Cheer will be out in late October. So it's been busy. Episodes will be less frequent. But uh, we'll gear up for another summer of shots and we'll have a lot of fun and funny content coming for the summertime. Really excited next week to get to talk to Adrian Stoner, former Lost Lake bartender extraordinaire, knows her way around uh, basically any tiki drink, is a master of the tiki genre, and also a master of the daiquiri. She now works for Maison Ferran, and uh, 
She has a new role focused on sustainability. So we're going to talk about sugar mill and rum production and sustainability, as well as get into the Mai Tai. Um, and Adrian's just a phenomenal bartender. She's featured in the book, Barantined, and gave some really beautiful insights and, uh, and a, a really awesome recipe in there as well. So look forward to talking to Adrian next week. And let's turn it over to our interview with Darcy O'Neill right here on Liquid Gold. Well, what a thrill to have back on the show here, Mr. Darcy O'Neill. We're huge fans of his. Darcy wrote the book on the old school soda fountain. The book is Fix the Pumps. And Terrell Rayleigh was uh, just a huge fan of yours and turned all of us on to your work. And um, it was a time period where bartending and creativity was really exploding. And uh, a lot of people were looking to your book, Fix the Pumps, for ideas and uh, for insights on a lot of the old school soda fountain culture that turned into, um, that sort of morphed into modern mixology as it made its way through the decades from the 1860s all the way up to the 1930s, 1940s. So Darcy O'Neill's back. We're, we're super thrilled to have him and uh, to have you. But we were just talking off mic for a second. You've had a little resurgence with the book, Fix the Pumps, which is available on your website, artofdrink.com. Um, tell me about the like resurgence of this book over the last year. Thanks for having me back. So hey, great to here. have you. So what happened is early on in the, the pandemic, I decided to give away my book for free, the PDF copy, um, because people were quite bored. I think it was last April. And then that seemed to drive a whole lot of sales of the, the hard copy of the book. And That's great. it got people thinking and talking about it. And uh, so what happened is there is this, you know, this, I, I guess it's kind of, we haven't really decided the name, but everybody says low alcohol drinks or zero proof for mm-hmm you know, spirit-free. I think there's still a lot of debate. It's definitely not mocktail, though. Right, right. Mocktail did not make it. (laughs) No, and so whatever we're coming up with as a name for these low-alcohol beverages, um, the old soda fountain offered a lot in that category because it was mostly syrups, bitters, tinctures. You know, one of my favorites, I think I mentioned the last time I was on the podcast, is um, aromatic tincture, which uh, is basically the flavoring um, with the bitters removed. So it's more approachable and you can add basically any flavor to soda water or even just, you know, whatever you're mixing it with. And so it it can brighten things up. And with this trend of people spending more time at home, uh, they're getting a little more creative because they can't go to their favorite bars as much and have that, you know, type of existence we had pre-pandemic. So it's this idea, you know, people started getting more creative and playing around with things, and the old soda fountains a very rich history for that. That is so cool. Um, yeah, there have been a lot of a lot of great books. Uh, Julia Bainbridge did the Good Drinks book, which is really focused on non-alcoholic drinks, zero proof, like you're saying, low ABV. I feel like a lot of the bartenders I know and people in the drinks industry just say low ABV. That kind of will cover anything that's got a little bit of alcohol, like a spritz in a can or something like that. But it's it's like this idea that, you know, you might be sitting around thinking, uh, God, I wish there was something like a, like a zero-proof Amaro in a bottle that I could drink. And it's like, well, yeah, it's called Coca-Cola. Uh, but your aromatic tincture kind of, uh, that could be a better way to do it because you're getting some of the spice, some of the herbaceous flavor, some of that, um, it's like that unmistakable 
flavor that's herbal meets uh, meets spice meets maybe a little bit of citrus. Because um, as we kind of talked about with Coca Cola, how lime is such a thing with with Coca Cola, but uh, but the old soda fountains and a lot of the extracts that you talk about in the book, fix the pumps, gives a lot of people a lot of new ideas to work with. Yeah, and it's also really affordable to work with too. Like when yeah. you start working, when I used to work at the bar, um, I'd always want to design my own cocktails, but you know the bar owner was like, well go easy with your experiments because you can always dump so much stuff down the sink Right um, on the alcohol level. But if you're playing with like essential oils and the tinctures and extracts and that type, like if you're just using up old lemon peel or any citrus root peel or whatever you're working with, it, it's a lot, you do a lot more experimentation with it and you know, you're not breaking the bank while you do it. Yeah. So that, that brings up a cool point because we're going to get into it's earth day here. Um, and this is a great time to have this discussion. You have a new venture we're going to talk about that is very environmentally uh, progressive. And But let's just give some of our, our listeners, you, know, you mentioned citrus peel. What's, what's some ways that people could take like, you know, citrus that's just sitting around, maybe you took a few strips off it to make some old fashions. Maybe you made five old fashions. You've got a, you know, an orange and a lemon sitting there that have been stripped a little bit, but they still have peels. What's something that people can do to use up the rest of that to be more sustainable with what they're doing? So one of the neatest things, if you have a soda siphon, like if you're getting into the soda thing, mm. put the put the peels actually into the, uh, the soda siphon before mm. you charge it with carbon dioxide. And as soon as that carbon dioxide goes in there, it does a really excellent job of extracting all those oils. And then you can just... Uh, squirt it out because the peels will float and the siphon tube should be down at the bottom so that it shouldn't plug anything. And then what you get is um, a far better extract instead of just trying to squeeze them with your finger or soak them in alcohol. But you get a really good um, lemon soda or a lemon-lime soda kind of, you know, Sprite 7-Up, but -hmm. with better, um, more essential oils. And then you just add uh, whatever you want after that. I feel like uh, the answer is really most bars need a soda siphon or, you know, to be carbonating their own stuff. Well, the neat thing about soda siphons is they are, if we're talking environmentally friendly, you don't have cans or bottles or plastics or glass. They have to recycle and you just basically fill them with water, hit them with CO2, and you're good to go. Endlessly. Yeah. Yeah, like 10 of them, you can probably do a night on them. Unless they're really heavy into the soda, but yeah. by then you get into the kegging system with a, a soda fountain tap. And you know that uh, here in Nashville, well, I don't know if you know this, but Elliston Soda Fountain, um, which, have you been to Nashville before? I, I've driven through it. I've driven. never actually stopped. Well, I was I, uh, I went down to Daytona when I was like 19 or 20 um, for spring break, so we drive through all the big cities. <laughs> That's great. Through, uh, I think it was like 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, oh, that's so great. We drove right downtown, and then uh, we never got to stop. So it is on my list of places to go. Well, that's pretty amazing because um, Elliston Soda Fountain, which is which was around here for, um, I don't have the the figures in front of me. It's been on the on the west side of kind of downtown, like west, just west of downtown on uh, this area, Elliston Place. That soda fountain's been there for decades. I want to say back to the 1930s or so. And it just has moved like two doors down to a new location. They've refurbished a whole new soda fountain. 
and um, they have new owners. And when we did the episode with you talking about soda fountain culture and, you know, going back 100, 150 years, the new owners of Elliston Soda Place reached out to say, wow, this was so amazing that, you know, these guys from Nashville are talking to Darcy O'Neill. We're such huge fans. And so these folks who are about to open this new iteration of Elliston Soda Place are huge fans of yours. So I just feel like you're going to have to make a Nashville trip here soon. And they're about to throw open the doors again um, after being closed, even beyond the pandemic. I feel like they've been closed a couple of years now. Um, they're about to reopen. I think it's next week or the week after. So, Yeah, and like I, I think I mentioned before, Nashville and Tennessee in particular is basically the best state or the best anywhere that I sell to. So That's yeah, incredible. Been, uh, yeah, no, it's always interesting because – uh, what you see is when pharmacy um, and even Holland House was selling acid phosphate drinks, you'd see people buying it because they enjoyed the drink, but then mm-hmm. they'd be getting like one or two bottle orders, and a lot of them go to Nashville and surrounding areas in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I when I was at Husk, I was ordering it, um, not you know not in huge quantities, but I ordered it when I could, and um, I just heard from because uh, you know Kenneth, who's our my co-host on the podcast. Um, he's still over at Husk working over there, and they're still using it. They have it in a brand new cocktail on the list. They're using some yeah, acid I, phosphate. I always notice when orders come through from regulars. So yeah, it, you know, not high volume like pharmacy, but yeah, definitely still a regular customer. You have this new exciting venture we're going to talk about. You have bought some property, and it's up on Lake Erie, correct? Yes. On the Canadian side, this is um, you're in Ontario. Yeah, and so just right across from Ohio mm-hmm. um, on Lake Erie is where we bought the property. And it's basically 11 and a half acres, and it's literally right on the lake. Like, you know, uh, you walk 75 feet and you fall off the bluff into the lake. Uh, so It looks uh, gorgeous. I saw the pictures. Um, so you're going to be making wine there, and you're going to have your uh, own winery. So, well, hopefully that's the plan in five to six, maybe seven years. We want to get yeah. the grapes growing first. Uh-huh. So it's this idea of um, it's really hard to find land that's appropriate to grow grapes, especially this far north. Yeah, so, uh, we'll we'll talk about why I bought it, but um, the the actual land's uh, sandy, so it's basically beach sand just below the surface. Mm. So uh, you've heard that grapes need to suffer a little bit to really yeah. express their greatness. For sure. So, you know, um, that's why California grapes and some Australian grapes do really well is because they're this, um, not quite in a drought environment, but pretty close. And that stresses the grapes or the vine and then creates a better grape, so they say. Mm-hmm. And then Those vines uh, reach down. They go much further down, mm-hmm. seeking water. When I was looking, I've always been looking for land uh, I don't know, something inside of me for the last, like, 10 years is, like, I like working in soil and planting things. And, you know, if you ask me when I was 20 if I'd ever be, like, a, a you know, somebody who liked to garden and do stuff, I'd be like, nah. You know, it's mm-hmm. quite peaceful uh, when you're working out in the dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened is, is that uh, I've been looking for something a little bit bigger than, a you know, a garden. Uh, so we find I just kind of notice this property it was a reasonably priced property and part of the reason is that it's falling into the lake mm-hmm. so there's enough erosion on the north side of lake erie that uh, i think it goes two meters or six feet per year 
is the erosion rate. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, so we're about 75 feet from the shore. So I've got a good 10 to, you know, 15 years before it actually hits the property that I'm on. That's amazing. Um, so you're so, the bluff that you're talking about. It's 75 feet down to the water? to the 100, sh- 120 feet. 120 feet. So that's a pretty big, uh, that's a pretty big bluff. Yeah, and so my... The, the, there used to be a property in front of my property, but it's eroded away. Oh, wow. And uh, so I guess six feet per year. I mean, it's not that bad, but yeah. um, eventually it's going to eat up a fair amount of stuff. But uh, we're close enough to this little town called Port Bruce that uh, they built a pier, and uh, it's a little fishing village. So what happened is, is that some of that pier is kind of blocking the erosion, so it slowed it down a little bit. Mm. So I think we got a little bit more time. But here's the fact: when I, you know, by the time it actually is halfway through my property, I'll be dead. Um, uh-huh. But the interesting part is that we've called the vineyard Vanishing Vines mm. because in probably a hundred years, it won't be there. Vanishing vines. I love it. So is there anything that you do that you can do or that you think about doing as you start this venture to keep the erosion from happening? Or is this just, this is just a fact of life and it's happening? So there's a couple things. I've been thinking about it, looking at it and uh, obviously planting trees yeah. uh, along that edge. And there are, there's already a little group of trees there, but not all the way. There's actually far, uh, a house with some farmland and they finally put up a row of trees because mm-hmm. uh, that will block the wind and keep the wind from, you know, uh, blowing up the, the sand and kind of it, it tends to slow down the erosion on that part. The other thing is, you know, plants, just even grass seed, anything with the roots that will uh, dig into that soil yeah. will actually help uh, stop, uh, you know, the erosion. But, you know, for me... I'm not too worried about it. Uh, it's a natural process. I understood it when I bought the property. Um, yeah. So I've accepted it. I'm going to make the best of it. And that's basically uh, the fun part for me is that it, it, it's, you know, a limited time offer. <laughs> yeah. It's just going to be 50 years and that's it. What an exciting time for you. Uh, are you, so you, we talked a little bit leading up to the show about um, what kind of grapes you're looking at. Just tell us a little bit. So it's a very specific wine grape that you're looking at growing there. Um, tell me what, what variety that is and why you're going with that one. When I first started this idea, I have a little bit of an environmental lean. Mm-hmm. I, I like to do things that are good. And one of the interesting stats, it was in the Globe and Mail, it's a Canadian newspaper, national mm-hmm. newspaper. And it said that in France, 20% of the pesticides are used on 3% of the, the crops, and the crop is grapes. So, uh, you know, the grapes tend to get all sorts of fungus diseases and, you know, Pierce's disease, which is out in California, is a big deal right now. And that actually kills the plant, but the, you know, then you get botrytis uh, and so usually you can work with botrytis, but you, a lot of times it's just a pain uh, on your grapes. And so all of these diseases are from the fact that they use vinifera, which is the European grape variety. Mm-hmm. And that was a big deal with phylloxera back in like the 1800s, which is still a pest that's prevalent today. So you still need to use rootstock that's resistant to that. Yeah. But, but all of these diseases and... 
there's also part of me that's lazy and treating all of these diseases just seems like a pain in the ass. Um, you know, spraying some vineyards spray like 12 times a year. And, you know, it's just a huge amount of work and pesticides and herbicides because I don't plan on using any herbicides, but if you ever go to a vineyard and it's really nice underneath the vines, no weeds and the roads are nicely mowed, it's usually because they're spraying like Roundup or 2,4-D underneath to to kill off all the weeds. Yeah. Yeah. And so my plan's not to do that. And we'll talk about it uh, in a few minutes, but uh, there's some research out of Australia about using a weed barrier and it doesn't affect uh, taste, but it has a couple other benefits. Mm. But the grape I'm looking at is uh, called Regent. And mm-hmm. uh, there's a couple other grapes, but there's a lot of great research going on in Germany mm-hmm. and parts of France on these modern hybrids. So if you say hybrid to you know anybody who's really into wine, uh, they kind of turn their nose up. And that's because most of the hybrids were bred back in the late 1800s and early 1900s to resist phylloxera. But they've still been breeding and trying to breed out that quote-unquote foxy flavor that people talk about in North American grapes. Mm -hmm. And even France is experimenting with uh, these really new modern hybrids. And the differentiation is that some of these modern hybrids are like 80 to 90% vinifera, Mm -hmm. and then only 10% of North American root or North American vines, so it creates a a vine or a grape that tastes more European, but has the de- disease resistance of a North American plant. And Regent's one of the ones that's uh, quite successful. It's a red grape variety, and I can't even get them this year or next year because other vineyards have bought up all the contracts. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, twenty twenty three to get it. Oh, wow. Okay. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, well, and it's fairly new. I mean, it's not because people are planting a lot of them, uh-huh. but the companies that produce the vines, like this trend is just starting, uh-huh. so they're trying to ramp up production of these vines, and they don't have enough stock at the moment to make cuttings to produce all the vines. So uh, it's if you're going to get into this stuff, now's the time to do it because it looks like there's a change happening in the world. Yeah, I think this is great too because uh, in my book, Garden to Glass, I talked to the barefoot farmer who's a legend out here, one of the only, if not the only, certified biodynamic farmer in Tennessee. He's up north a little bit, uh, Red Boiling Springs, Tennessee. And one of the things that always stuck with me was how he talked about if you're going to cultivate, if you're going to farm, if you're going to plant things, if you're going to do things on any kind of large scale at all, or even even on a smaller scale, look to how your grandparents and your great-grandparents did it. Because they weren't relying on pesticides and they weren't relying on herbicides. And he, it's really, um, he preaches that gospel. Um, And he will make a believer out of anyone. It's just not the way to do it because you are, you're changing the nature of the soil. If you are spraying things that are designed to kill other plants that are there that he, he, he talks about how those other plants are trying to tell you something or they're, they're trying to give something to the soil. And so it's just, it is, it's just an amazing time for this. And I feel like pesticides and herbicides are just not the answer for healthier plants. Yeah, and one of the things with grapes is that you have to rotate the, the fungicides 
because they become ineffective. So you have to be running two or three different varieties, varieties of these fungicides to uh, deal with all the, the problems. And you're absolutely right is that back in 1930, they weren't spraying this stuff. Yeah. You know, they had different ways of handling it and proper selection of your grapevine. So one of the things is in Ontario, you know, they really try to replicate France and you should be kind of doing a little bit more German because it's a little bit farther north. Mm-hmm. But uh, the one thing about Germany is that, that they tend to be more open, whereas France is very rigid about their vines, mm-hmm. you know, what can be labeled. So they pretty much are doing all ripping out of the hybrids. And they've been doing it for decades now. Yeah. Um, whereas Germany, basically regents in the EU laws is considered vinifera because a Germans kind of forced it, but it also because it has such a high percentage of vinifera genes and like maybe only 10% or 20% North American grapevine genes. So, you know, it's hard to tell the difference. Um, You wouldn't drink it and expect to be drinking a, you know, North American or a hybrid vine. So the changing, so the focus on the disease resistance was the first 75 years of breathing. And now they're focusing on the flavor because they know which genes when they cross all these plants. So regions really disease resistant and it actually tastes good. Yeah. So one thing when I looked into Regent a little bit when we were when I was leading up to talking to you, it seems like the skin of Regent is is kind of intense um, or has a lot of character to it. Have you seen, and I didn't, I didn't go this far on my research, but have you seen or heard of like people making rosé out of region? Are you planning on doing any kind of rosé action or any kind of skin contact? Cause these skins seem, seem really interesting. Yeah. Not at the moment. Like, I mean, obviously I'm going to do, I love the experiment. That's why cocktails have always amused me is because there's so much you can work with. And I've already, I've got like probably, Oh, maybe 10 different varieties of grapes on order, just 25 of them. Mm-hmm. So I can try different things. Um, cause it's all going to depend on, you know, the location. The nice thing about Lake Erie is it's quite a warm lake in the summer. So it extends the, the fall season. Mm. So I could probably grow some of the stuff that takes a little bit longer and it, it will be interesting to see. But yeah, I'm up for trying everything. So even growing, um, you know, Moscato, there's some North American hybrids out mm-hmm. in New York. And you know, Moscato, you know, it's a basic wine. It's sweet. It's, you know, pleasant, easy drinking. But one of the interesting facts and kind of one of the reasons I want to kind of look at it, too, is that Canada imports 500,000 cases of Moscato from one company in Australia, Jacobs Creek. And wow. They import all of 500,000 cases. And that's basically going all the way across the world for a wine that we can grow here. And part of the reason it's not grown here is, you know, it's not seen as something that's uh, high quality enough or, you know, it, it, Moscato, it's just party wine. You know? Yeah. But, uh, and I, well, I, you can I, make I great vermouth it. with it. That's for sure. You know, Koki yeah. Americano, um, they use Moscato wine for that. And uh, it's just great because... It retains that kind of, I don't know, that kind of candy, that kind of candy yeah, sweetness of it. That's it's pleasing. But what's genius about Koki Americano is how they're taking it uh, and adding herbs and spices and kind of broadening it out, and then also making it bitter on the finish. 
Um, so there's, I'm well, sure there's a lot thing. you can do with it. Uh, there's a lot you can, anybody who's worked in cocktails knows you can take any ingredient and change it into something epic. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, uh, you just need the creativity to do it. And often, like I mentioned earlier, is that there's a lot of Ontario wineries that are trying to be like France. When I'm a, just a believer that, you know what, Canada has a reputation for being environmentally friendly, you know, we should focus on that. That's our thing. We're, you know, uh, leaders in the world. Greenpeace was started here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we kind of portrayed that image as, you know, wildlife and forests. And, yeah, a lot of people agree with that here. So that's something we should be doing here. So are you, um, as you looked into this this piece of property to grow grapes, so there are not grapes being grown there. Are there grapes being grown nearby? Is there kind of a community of winemakers somewhere close to you? Yeah, there's a few. So mm-hmm. it's it's um it's an emerging region is what it's called. And so Ontario has their Ontario Grape Growers Association. So this part of the Erie North Shore is called an emerging region. So there's six other small wineries that have opened up. So uh, my first plan is to grow grapes and then obviously sell them to them. Uh, to start and mm-hmm. then slowly build up a winery over time. Uh, we're about a hundred and you know maybe 150 kilometers, 100 miles away from uh, the Niagara Peninsula or Niagara Falls, and that's the the main growing region in Ontario. And that's probably well, that's almost all grapes there. Uh, that's uh, changed a lot over time from uh, fruit. So, you know, peaches and plums to grapes. Mm-hmm. But nobody's really doing organic or low-impact growing. I mean, it just doesn't seem to be a thing. That's more out in British Columbia. Uh-huh. tends to focus on that. So, you know, there's always an opportunity, and this is the thing, is if I have to be the first one to really push it hard, that's yeah. right up my alley. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, so you things are exciting. You know, taking take, it's it's a little risky, but I mean, if you can make good wine out of them, uh, you know, and, and most people aren't. You know, most of the, the written articles about wine are rather snooty, but the vast majority of wine, even in France, is just you know table wine, just drinking wine for dinner. You know, not everybody's drinking vintage this and vintage that. You know, um, that's the stuff that uh, gets the highest price, but that's not necessarily what people are drinking every day. Well, in the cocktail world, even I used to always say that I'd rather have the worst drink with my friends than the best bottle of anything by myself. Yep. Um, uh, it, it's often just what you're drinking with friends and people. It can, like, uh, I've been in enough cocktail events to know that by the end of the night, <laughs> it's, uh, you're drinking, you know, shots of Jagger and whatever <laughs> else is Fernet and Definitely. Fireball. And we're all just supposed to be the high-end cocktail people. <laughs> you know, we're just having fun. Yeah, so, drinking High Life and shooting Fernet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's, you know, that's late night. And that's the fun part. That's, you know... Uh, it's what you do with it that matters and, you know, connecting with people and explaining what you're doing and taking the time to do that. And uh, that really connects with people. This is exciting, man. And uh, congrats for uh, taking the plunge. You're, you're literally taking the plunge into Lake Erie. <laughs> we are. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's just, also, you know, it's also just nice there. It's, uh, you know, this little village, 
uh, they don't even have a variety store or a gas station. I think it's like 600 people live there. Oh, that's and great. So it's just kind of a, almost like a cottage, but with no proper, like we can't build on it either. So, uh, because it is falling into the lake, but if we, the winery would be built, we'd buy another piece of property around there, obviously. But, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's. So your plan is to, you'll be doing, you'll be farming the grapes there. You'll be growing grapes there and then, um, build a winery kind of around that later, but you're going to be living, uh, not on the property or you live in kind of where you're at now. Is that the yeah, plan? So we're about an hour, we're about an hour away mm-hmm. and kind of more central Southern Ontario, um, which is not appropriate for growing grapes in this region. So we have mm-hmm. the continental climate, which is this idea that, you know, uh, our growing degree days, I was just looking these up before uh, you called, and Napa used to have 1,400 growing degree days in 1920, and that's about where this vanishing vines is. That's that 1,400 growing degree days. Uh, where I am now is maybe a little less, but because it's not near any water. It's like a hundred kilometers or so away from water. Uh, we can get down to, well, I'm going to be Celsius, but it's like negative 25, which is enough to kill grapevines. Mm. Uh, so being close to the lake that has a moderating effect. So it doesn't really get that cold. So it's called weather spark and you can look up growing degree days mm. for any weather station. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a neat way to look at things. But, uh, back in 1920, Napa Valley was at 1400, which is where, uh, we are today here or at the, the vineyard. And now it's, uh, in 2020, it's 1800. So there's been 400 growing degree days. And if you don't know what a growing degree day is, it's just a simple calculation. You take, uh, the temperature, the lowest temperature of the day, mm-hmm. and the highest temperature of the day, subtract, add them together, subtract 10 and divide by two. And mm-hmm. then you add them up for every day above 10 degrees Celsius, so mm-hmm. which is like uh, 60 or 55 Fahrenheit, uh, somewhere in that area. And it's just a, a kind of a, a rough gauge as to, you know, like something like Merlot needs 1,500 growing degree days and uh, Syrah needs 1,700. And the Riesling's around 1,300. That's why Ontario grows so much Riesling. Hmm. Same with Germany. But uh, with global warming, if you're a betting man uh, and you're looking at one growing degree increase in temperature, that adds about 200 growing degree days a year. So we go from 1,400 here to 1,600, which makes us uh, Bordeaux. That is wild. uh, Hmm. Yeah, and it, most people think, oh, the temperature is going to go up a degree. But in reality, it's the growing degree days that goes up. And so. Well, and you add that up um, over 20 yeah. years, and that sounds crazy to me. If you look at the next 20 years, you're, you're going to add that many days? That's wild. Yeah. And so if it goes up by two, then we go up uh, 400 growing degree days hmm. in this area. So it's basically the number of days above 10 degrees Celsius, it's about 200 around this area. Um, and so every one of those days, if it's up a degree, that's 200 degrees a year uh, for growing. And, but it it definitely changes what you can grow. Um, and this is the thing is that in France, they're really looking hard, um, because Bordeaux's changing and all the regions in France are changing. And so their wines are going to change as well. So this is kind of the thing is that, um, if you're a betting man, 
you know, bet on places like Ontario because we're going to have really good climate soon. Like Canada is going to be, if you're a person who just goes based on, hey, it's going to be warmer, this part of Canada is going to be a winner in the global warming thing. But, you know, California is really going to struggle with water issues and France is going to lose their characteristics. Mm. Uh, you know, the wines have been growing or they've been growing for you know centuries. So that's the change. Um that people are worried about. So, and that's another reason why we bought this piece of property is because looking 10 years down the road, it should be a pretty solid growing area. Wow. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's crazy. I hadn't thought about that calculation and the, you know, just the impact that that can have in, you know, on five to 10 years of time. It's just crazy. Yeah. Cause right now we can't grow Shiraz or Syrah here. It's just not, there's just not enough heat units. But in 10 years, if it goes up, or even five years, if it goes up a degree, um, which it looks like it already has, because we're getting, you know, there's lots of warm periods. We have a really warm spring right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it did snow yesterday, but it always snows in Canada in April. <laughs> just um, like in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, you know, you just don't plant until May. Until May. It's just a fact. But the idea is that, you know, you can start looking at, um, growing different grapes and even some of the hybrid grapes uh, like Chambrusen, uh gets really good ratings on flavor, but it's really, uh, Missouri is kind of where they grow a lot of it because they've got the growing degree days, whereas here it's not quite warm enough yet. But in, you know, five years, it definitely will be. So do you see that, does the growing, does the growing season then, is it just longer on, uh, on both ends? Like the, like your spring will start a little earlier and then you'll be able to grow, you'll be able to, you'll be harvesting things later. The vines will blossom earlier. Is that what you're looking at in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, it's looking that way. Um, it already has been, but again, it's not a nice, smooth transition. Yeah. So one of the problems is this: it's going to be, you know, 20 degrees Fahrenheit, or it was 20 degrees Fahrenheit yesterday, negative 6 Celsius. Um, but a whole bunch of my fruit trees, because it was so warm at the end of March, uh, it, it caused them all to blossom. Yep. So I think I'm going to lose a couple apricot trees, but apricot growing apricot trees here is a known risk. Mm-hmm. They're heartbreakers um, because the cold, especially when they're in bloom, um, they're very susceptible to freeze damage. And so I lost one last year because we had a negative six event or 20 Fahrenheit event in May. Uh-huh. So the the change in temperature is not nice and smooth where April's are going to be nice and warm. It's a little bit more rough that way, but in five to 10 years, you'll probably be a week or two earlier where you can plant. Because here, yeah. I don't plant my garden until like the second half of May. Uh-huh. You know, I'll start things inside, but uh, I suspect in, you know, five years, uh, 10 years will be the beginning of May. I know that some of my friends in Colorado have had really, really rough freezes lately, you know, in the last week or so. And then we just here in in Nashville, Tennessee, I've got a bunch of stuff planted. I've started a bunch of seeds outside and we were covering things uh, in the last few nights because we dipped down to about 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, And so everyone's covering things and that's not normal for out here in April, uh, in April, you know, April 20th or whatever. Uh, so yeah. And that was the, what they, uh, it used to be called global warming and then they called it global change because 
it's going to be a little bit more chaotic environmental. But then they went back to global warming because it's scarier. And it, it <laughs> kind of is, if you're looking, like for me, I see it because my trees bloom earlier and then they just get the blossoms frozen off them because you know, it, you're trying to, I wish there was a way I could keep them from blossoming early because I always know that there's going to be a cold spell in April and it's going to nail them. Yeah. But, uh, it's just kind of the risk. Like apples and pears do fine up here because they know they don't uh, blossom so early, but uh, apricots and peaches, they're the ones that uh, are a little eager to get out. But vines should be fine. Yeah. They tend to hold back a little bit. Love to hear your perspective as always, and uh, congrats on the new venture. And we look forward to, to, to just finding out how it goes for you. And uh, don't forget to get back here for Elliston Place Soda Shop opening up. Uh, they're big fans of yours. As soon as I can get on a, even drive down, but as soon as I get on a plane, uh, I will come and visit. Excellent. You can stay here. You can stay here at the house. Okay. You know, hopefully, you know, by then things are getting back to whatever the new normal is going to be. And speaking of which, I'm fully vaccinated myself and uh, you are on your way. So, but you're living in a completely different country where things are different. Let's talk a little bit about the vaccine situation up there because you have a health system up there that is just so different from ours. You have trust in the public health system. And that leads to trust in the vaccines. But tell me a little bit about the perspective of where you're coming from in Canada with the vaccines that are about to be readily available as they are here now. Canada doesn't have a a manufacturing capability, so we depend on other countries. But uh, our health system ordered basically every type of vaccine you could get. So we've got AstraZeneca, the Moderna one, Johnson & Johnson's coming soon. So uh, it's basically pulling in vaccines from everywhere. But one of the neat things is uh, there's enough, everybody has access to healthcare here. And though it's not first class service all the time, you know, you do, there are some wait periods, but they're not that bad. Like if you have cancer, uh, you're getting treated in a day or two. Those things are always a priority over like something like hip surgery. Uh, So that's where you kind of have to wait a little bit for surgery. But the, People have come to trust the healthcare system, and I think it's about 95% of people in Canada want their healthcare system. They don't want it to ever go private um, because access to everything seems to be good enough. Yeah. You know, it's not perfect, but it's good enough. And that increases a, a certain level of trust in things like vaccines because you always get to see a doctor. You know, if you need to see one, you can. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like if you can't afford it, don't get the best service. It's like everybody gets the service. So there's a higher acceptance of vaccines here right now. So um, that's kind of a good thing for us because we can get to that herd immunity without having any issues. Yeah, I'll be interested interested to see, um, and I'll be following to see how how quickly you guys get vaccinated as a country, how quickly you get up to whatever seventy five percent of the of the population, because we're going to struggle with that here. We've got Fox News to contend with, we've got Tucker Carlson, which thank God you don't have a Tucker Carlson up there. But we were talking a little yeah. bit of it. Um, what you know, Fox News didn't come to Canada, but they almost did, and you can tell us maybe why they didn't come to Canada. So one of the interesting things is that in Canada, there's a law that you can't, if you're a news, if you're considered a news channel, a newspaper, you can't willingly lie or, you know, um, you, you have to tell the truth, 
even if you don't fully understand the truth, like, it's not punitive if you make a mistake. But you can't willingly go tell people that the vaccine's harmful, for example, mm. um, because that would break the law. And so Fox News tried to come to Canada, but that law makes it too hard for them to, you know, syndicate their Tucker Carlson's who are, you know, they don't necessarily, like, I understand that media has to be promotional. They're trying to sell a product, mm -hmm. but that pushes the line here in what he does. So they can't do that here. And that's why uh, we have a higher acceptance because you never see that on the news around here. So you can get Fox like to cable packages and, you know, satellite things, but, um, it's not on regular carriage here, so it uh, you can't actually get it without you know doing something online. Uh, but yeah, it basically helps keep people a little more trusting of the system. And it's kind of a shame here because um, you have free press, we have free press, we have um, you know, and I actually I really like the Wall Street Journal's news department, and I like the way that they cover news stories. But they'll say one thing, you know, like when the Johnson & Johnson pause happened, they had really good reporting on, you know, this is why they're doing this. Their actual news reporting of it was very clear and concise that Johnson & Johnson believes the, the, the reward far outweighs the risk. And it was data driven. It was news. And Fox News, the, the TV channel, they have their news department that during the election was firewalled off from the opinion side. But then what I think what confuses people here is when Fox News has the opinion shows, the Hannity's and the Tucker Carlson's, people look at those as news when they are not news at all. Do you have anything like that in Canada or is that just, is that just us? Uh, I think it's, you know, your opinion channels like the Tucker Carlson's are basically you have like unmitigated free speech. Yeah. without consequences. Whereas here, um, there are, again, you have free speech, like we're allowed to say anything in public, but you can't, if you're a news organization, you can't willingly lie. And you also can't spread hate speech. So, you know, organizations like the KKK could never get a foot up, hold up here because anytime they tried to put out pamphlets, you know, the RCMP, I'm looking at the national police force, could stop them because yeah. this is considered a hate crime. Mm. And those things I'm okay with. I know people hold up the, the, the First Amendment in the United States, and you know, um, but words do hurt. And I know sticks and stones may break your bones, but you know, words will never hurt you. Uh, that's not true, though, because words right. you know, do have meaning, and they do actually affect people. So it's this idea that you know, a few rules are okay. Um, as long as it doesn't affect the overall arc of this idea of free speech. Right. Well, uh, we're, we're glad to be neighbors with you. And, uh, <laughs> oh, I've had so much fun in the United States. Like, <laughs> at, uh, I was glad when Trump left and then I was like, well, if he loses, then, you know, we'll get back to having a good time. And then COVID came along and kind of put a dent in that, but I'm definitely looking forward to coming back. Excellent. The, the United States is a fun country. It, uh, it's very different in every region, and it just makes for a, a good time. We do know how to have, have fun, and that is part of why I think we are struggling and becoming more divided. Is you know, my wife and I talk about it. How you know, we used to go to concerts, 
music shows, you know, music, going to see live music at the club, going to a restaurant with all the relatives. There's 15 people there. They don't agree on everything. Without those things, you're only going to become isolated from one another. And uh, and that's what's kind of been tough, I think, for, for, you know, this country that's used to having a good time and being able to kind of work through the differences. Now you don't have that. And I think it's, you know, it's it's going to take a lot to climb out of it. So. I think you guys are part of the way there. Like, there's definitely, you know, it's funny. Like, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. That's my social media thing of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as they pulled Trump off, the, the mood just elevated. And it was really day and night. And so what happens is that I think little things like that, you, know, you just got to get rid of the complainers or the big ones with the big mouth. Yeah. And realize that, you know, like I said last time, we all have family problems, you know, look at <laughs> yours and we'll be there for you when you come out of it. <laughs> well, appreciate it, man. And uh, thanks so much for talking to us. Look forward to the new wine venture and uh, we'll keep checking in with you on that. We will see you on Nashville time at some point here. Well, and I'm always happy to come on this podcast. It's fun one. I do like talking. Excellent. Well, always a, always a joy to have you and uh, an honor, and we're big fans of yours. Again, check out everything Darcy's doing at artofdrink.com. You can check out the book. You can buy the book there. Fix the pumps. You can get acid phosphate to make incredible drinks. You can get lactart, acid of milk, to make also incredible drinks and also maybe to give you a secret ingredient for your milkshakes and for your uh, concoctions that you make at home and um, just a lot of great stuff on there. Artofdrink.com, Darcy O'Neill. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always inspiring to talk to Darcy O'Neill. A phenomenal human being and just a real creative, smart, smart guy. Um, to try and figure out the future of wine and where it's going, I think we learned a lot today. Regions are going to change Areas like Canada, maybe even Colorado, which is already a a growing area for wine production. It's just all going to change over the next 20, 30 years. So super interesting to get a little insight on that today. Thanks to Jess Matchin for the Liquid Gold logo, Upright T-Rex music for the tunes. Shout out to Michael Eads and everybody at We Own This Town. My name's Mike Wolf for my co-host, Kenneth Dedman. We will see you next time right here on Liquid Gold.